I had to guess this exotic meat that happened to be alligator. Oh my gosh. You guessed it right. Hey everyone, I'm Morgan, co-founder of Primal Kitchen and host of the Primal Kitchen podcast. Today, I'm excited to be sitting down with PhD turned food blog sensation, Kanchen Koya. Kanchen combines her doctorate in molecular biology from Harvard Medical School and her training from the Institute of Integrative Nutrition to elevate the health of families with science and flavor through an unlikely health hero, spices. She believes that spices are much more than a viral trend. Recent studies show spices might also contain powerful health-boosting properties. Before we get into it, a brief reminder that any and all opinions and views shared by hosts and guests on this podcast are the speaker's own. Do not represent the view of Primal Kitchen or its affiliates or parent company. Hello! Hi, Morgan. It's so great to be here. Thanks so much for that kind introduction. Oh, yeah. No, it's so great to have you. Thanks for joining us. Um, We are super pumped to chat with you. I know you use our products with your kids, so I'm thankful just to have a fan on the line. Um, So let's just start with your story. How did you get here um, to this wonderful world of spices? Yeah. So, you know, My relationship with spices goes back literally to probably the day I was born because I was born in India. And in India, as many people might know, spices are kind of an integral part of every Indian family's kitchen, but also their pharmacy, Um, F-A-R-M pharmacy, right? So we're a culture that really believes in the power of food as medicine and food for vibrancy and spices play a big role. They have an ancient Indian medical systems like Ayurveda, which talked about spices 5,000 years ago. And so I kind of just always knew that spices were special, had medicinal value. Whenever I would get sick as a kid, my grandmother would whip up a golden milk. We didn't call it golden milk growing up. It was actually something that most Indian kids don't like because the grandma version is very potent. It has a lot of turmeric, unlike the fancy version down at my local cafe in Brooklyn. So, you know, I grew up with spices. They're part of my DNA. But frankly, I kind of rolled my eyes at them because I was a scientist and I wanted to study science. And I came to the U.S. to study and I went to Harvard Medical School to do my Ph.D. And I was like, oh, all this mumbo jumbo, like food as medicine stuff. No, I want to work on real science. And then my lab at Harvard Med started to study, believe it or not, turmeric. Stop it. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Decades later, I'm, you know, at one of the world's most renowned institutions. And I'm like, wait, what? They're studying the spice that I kind of rolled my eyes at as a kid. So it was really like a, you know, full circle moment. And it planted a seed in my mind that a lot of this ancient wisdom around these natural ingredients, and especially around food, is bearing you know, um, is bearing fruit and also being corroborated by modern science, which I'm a huge passion, huge fan of and like really passionate about. So it planted a seed for me. I dabbled a little bit in the world of biotech and pharmaceuticals. And then I became a mom and my son was six months old and I started to feed him food. Um, I started to give him purees like pear puree and sweet potato. We were living in New York at the time and it just felt natural to me 
to add spices to his baby purees. I wanted to add flavor, but I was also thinking about turmeric from my lab and all these polyphenols that spices contain and how they can be so beneficial. And like most parents, you know, I wanted to give my kids the best start possible at life from a nutritional perspective. So I started to add spices to his baby food. And a lot of my mom friends in New York City were a little bit curious, also alarmed that I was adding spices to baby food. Like, is that even allowed? And I realized there's a lot of misconceptions around what we can and cannot feed our kids, yeah. what we can and cannot eat ourselves. There's so much just nutritional confusion. And so I started Spice Spice Baby back in 2014 as a blog, um, just to educate and inspire families, parents, to understand that spices have medicinal value, they have health-boosting properties, there is science to back that up, and they add so much flavor to food. So why not spice up baby's food, kids' food, family's food, and really enjoy these age-old ancient benefits in our modern lives? Well, that's amazing. Yeah. There's a lot of research now on just like taste bud development and like kind of what you give a kid at, like the kids will eat anything at six months old. Like they're very like, it's yeah. the toddler years that it gets tougher. So isn't there some research on like introducing spices early and then that kind of having a longer term effect on palate? Yes, there is a emerging research that exposure early on to any flavors, not just spices, but there's a really cool study that looked at carrot juice consumption in pregnancy. So pregnant women who had carrot juice, their babies were actually more accepting of carrot mixed into their rice cereal than kids whose moms didn't have the carrot juice. And the study really just supports this idea that taste bud development begins as early as in the womb. Yeah. And so, yes, absolutely. Babies' palates are really adaptive and moldable. And, you know, it's a great window of opportunity to just kind of expand their taste buds. There will be phases, like you said, the toddler years, age four or five, where kids develop strong preferences, not just because of taste buds, but because they want to be, they want to have agency around what they're eating. Yeah. Um, and my kids are no exception, but we can really give them a head start in terms of adventurous eating and being open-minded by exposing them early to a host of different flavors. Yeah. So did you start, like, what did it look like? What else were you giving your kids then? You know, I was giving them a lot of foods that people out in the West would be familiar with. So like mashed avocado with lentils, but I would add a little turmeric to that. If I was doing, um, you know, sweet potato, I might do a little bit of cinnamon. If I was doing pear, I might do cardamom. So it was like really just the things that we normally give babies. Um, my son was more into purees. My daughter was more into baby-led weaning, yeah. kind of like holding foods. But I just added flavor to whatever they were eating because there is no scientific basis as to why we should be giving babies bland food. It's just become this thing we do, but there's no basis, no health basis for that. In fact, the opposite is true. Yeah, it was interesting. My pediatrician was telling me early on, I mean, maybe even before you're actually introducing solids, like whatever you're cooking in the kitchen, give them a taste like from your finger so they can like associate the smell with the flavor. I don't remember why, but she was very encouraging of like, give them a taste of the flavor at a young age. So they're not just, yeah. I mean, this rice cereal thing, I'm just like, how did we get here? Like, yeah, I know (laughs) it's crazy. Cultures around the world have been giving babies whatever the family eats. I mean, fair enough, you can omit the excess salt, but, you know, um, there is really no reason to give babies this kind of dumbed down baby food. Yeah. Like, they can be eating what we're eating. Yeah. For sure. well, we're, we're for adults now, but like, it's very much like 
people are like, oh, if your grandma wouldn't recognize the ingredient, don't eat it, right? Like there's kind of this like reversal to what used to be just what we ate, r- real food. And, but with, I, I feel like friends of mine, their parents said like, oh, we had the baby grinder where they just took whatever they were eating and like ground it up and then gave that to the baby, which is like so funny because no one has a baby grinder anymore when they have kids. I know. I know. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. I think the bottom line is we've kind of made it overcomplicated and it doesn't have to be, you know? Yeah, for sure. Um, so you, where were you born? So I was born in Mumbai in India and then I came over when I was 18 to go to college in the U S and I've been here ever since. So do you think like culturally, like how was, what is going on like for feeding with kids in, in India versus the States? Like, Yeah. So India is a lot like, I think, just cultures that have been around, you know, a lot longer. So um, kids grow up. I mean, the first food for babies in India is actually a a lentil and rice porridge that's called khichdi. Um, In China, it's rice porridge. So, you know, I'm not a huge fan of like any mono food because I think diversity is really key with kids. So in India, it's khichdi, but then in the khichdi, we mix in vegetables. and And that's a way to add diversity. Some, you know, families who eat meat might mix in chicken. There's a lot of spices and herbs from day one. There is no concept of like, oh, babies can't handle flavor. It's like, oh, they absolutely can. Like, we love it. Why wouldn't they? Yeah. So interesting. So you have your PhD. You went to Institute for Integrative Nutrition. Is that right? Yeah. Yes. Yes. So I had this, you know, I had a PhD. I have a deep understanding at a molecular level of kind of um, DNA repair and how cells prevent aging and prevent disease. But I wanted a more macro perspective on nutrition and health. So I did the course through the Institute of Integrative Nutrition. I learned a ton. And then, yeah, I really, when I started Spice Spice Baby, to be totally honest, you know, I was a new mom and I thought I was just doing it as a hobby to kind of buy time before I went back to my more serious world of biotechnology and medicine. But um, I love the intersection of food and science so much, food, health, and science. And so I just kind of kept going one step at a time. And, um, you know, I wrote my cookbook. I self-published it. It was the first self-published cookbook to be featured on the Today Show. And I think it was kind of like this moment, like, okay, maybe this doesn't have to just be this, like, part-time side hobby project like maybe I can make this what I do for work and what I find meaning in and so it's really evolved over time and now I can say I create content and I write and I teach and I try to inspire people to really leverage the power of spices and food for health and I get to call it work and I feel super lucky yeah and so where what are you seeing what is the intersection these days like bringing your science background together with like disease prevention and all that like where are we at like what do you think is the the right way forward, if there is one. Yeah. Oh my gosh. You know, it's such a good question because I feel like we're all looking for this perfect formula, the perfect diet, the perfect plan. And, you know, it doesn't sound very sexy to say it, but I don't think there is one perfect diet or one perfect plan for longevity and disease prevention. But I think if we look at all the data as an aggregate and all the evidence, there are certain common denominators and common principles um, that I know Primal Kitchen shares, which is why, you know, I love you guys' products and I love your mission. And I think some of those common principles are, number one, 
we really need to move away from hyper-processed, hyper-palatable food that has a lot of junk that, like you said, our grandma would never be able to pronounce. 60% of the food consumed in the United States is hyper-processed. Um, you know, like... We're just not designed to be able to digest those foods, assimilate them. They can disrupt our gut microbiome, which we're learning is so integral to overall health. So the first thing I tell people is just let's go back to the basics. Let's go back to real, whole, unprocessed food as much as possible. There are healthy, well-made, you know, processed foods that are convenient. I mean, like I was telling you earlier, the ketchup, the Primal Kitchen ketchup, which when I look at the ingredients, I was like... I don't know if my kids are going to like this because it's so like it's real food in a bottle, you know, which tastes like ketchup. They love it. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, like serious win. So I think we live in times where there's so much innovation around food that you can get some really amazing real food based kind of convenient foods. But my first principle is let's go back to real food, real whole unprocessed food. That's number one. I feel like if people just did that. That would be so huge for disease prevention. You know, we get into the weeds with, well, what should our macronutrient breakdown look like? And are these macronutrients better than these? Like, what plan should I be on? And I really am a fan of just more basic principles. And like I said, you know, I think some of these labels are sexier and they sell and they make good headlines and make good Twitter kind of um, tweets. But the reality is, you know, eat real food not too much. Okay. So I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be probably like, um, Michael Pollan, you're getting Michael Pollan on. I'm basically not too much, mostly plants. Okay. So that's pretty much what the data says. Okay. You can get into nitty gritty about like, again, these like ratios and different labels, but if people just did that, we would be so much better off. We could really reduce our disease burden. So, um, that's where I start. Yeah. It's interesting. When I started down this health path, like in my own personal journey, I read that book. What was it? Was that Omnivore's Dilemma or In Defense of Food? I can't remember. Maybe Omnivore's Dilemma. Yeah. Omnivore's Dilemma. Yeah. And then I read everything under the freaking sun and it went on like a 10 year journey of like, I'm going to be keto, like 20 total grams of carbohydrates, not net per day. And then I'm going to try like pescatarian while I'm getting my yoga certification. And then, and in the end of the day, like, I mean, everything from that book, skinny bitch to like I don't even know the keto manifesto, like who knows what, right? I mean, yeah. I tried it all and it just really, like I could have stopped at eat food, not too much, mostly plants. Like literally, that's, that's <laughs> yeah, like I could have just stopped there. And for me, mostly plants, like I'm very much like a meat eater these days, especially after having kids, I found myself like pretty anemic and had an aversion to red meat, but supplemented and could not get my iron levels up until I started yeah. just eating steak quite a bit when I was pregnant with my first um, so mostly plants is just like, to me, fill your plate with mostly plants and whatever yeah. you do with the rest is fine. Um, but yeah, it is funny how we really, we really have <laughs> overcomplicated, overcomplicated it, but you know, yeah, I mean, there's, know. there's people like in our community who like the keto diet is super beneficial if you're epileptic or, you know, if you have a yeah. cancer, or if you're worried about heart disease, like, I think there are like tweaks for the other 20%, but 80%, you're kind of there. Yeah. So I think you raise a really good point, which I also really emphasize, which is the bio individuality of each of us. Right. So we can start with this template. um, Eat real food. Not too much. Mostly plants. Really powerful. But then we can layer that with bio individuality. So some people can really thrive on a plant exclusive diet. Frankly, I'm not one of them. I've tried it. 
because I would love to for environmental reasons or whatever, you know, just lower my carbon footprint. Um, but I do better with mostly plants and some sustainably, responsibly raised animal products. And that works for me as a bio-individual human being. There are studies that looked at, for example, blood sugar responses of 800 people. It was a study done in Israel that slapped continuous glucose monitors on 800 plus people and gave them a variety of foods. There were identical twins in the study. And they found that different foods give different blood sugar responses in different people. Sorry, the same food. The same food results in a different blood sugar response in different people, including between identical twins. And the hypothesis is that we're unique, not just genetically, but also in terms of our microbiome. We have this unique microbiome fingerprint, and it kind of um, dictates how we respond to different foods. So some people can get away with a lot of whole, unprocessed, complex carbohydrates. Some people do better with higher healthy fats and more protein and less complex carbohydrate. I'm a big fan of not eliminating any food in totality, especially if it's a whole unprocessed food. But I think what you talked about, this kind of experimentation that is important that we do with ourselves to find the ideal diet for us. And so when people ask me, what's the best diet for health? I'm like, what's the best diet for your health? If you start with this basic formula and then you have to tweak and experiment, maybe certain macronutrient ratios work better for you than for the person next to you. And you honor that. You listen to your body. You see how you feel. And it can also change over time. It can change during periods like pregnancy. Yeah. You know, so I think just that basic fundamental kind of principle that we described and then layering on that, like listening to your body and honoring your bio individuality. And I think you're going to be on the right track. Yeah, for sure. It's interesting. So your job nowadays is like drastically different than what it was before you got into Spice Spice Baby, right? I mean, because now you're like interacting with people in the community and you're influencing. You're an influencer now, really. <laughs> I do not like that word, but I guess I am. <laughs> well, you have a big following. I mean, people are paying attention to what you've got going on. So how does that like, how does that compare for you? Like, I mean, just what's that like? That's just got to be such a different experience. Like, are you liking it? How are you feeling about social media these days? I'm like so curious what. Yeah, man, that's a loaded question. Um, Social media. hmm. So I'll I'll answer the first part of the question first, which is, um, you know, in some ways, my work is similar to what I did in the lab. So when I was in a lab, I would come up with a hypothesis. I would design an experiment. I would test it. Now what I do is I create recipes, which feels very similar to me to being in a lab, kind of mixing molecules, as nerdy as that sounds. I mix ingredients that have functional benefits to try to create recipes that can, for example, support your gut health or your mood or inflammation management um, or your immune system. You know, so I feel like it's quite similar, except mm-hmm. now I get to eat my end product, which yeah. is And it's something that I, you know, even when I was doing science, I always feel like science is so powerful, but it's only powerful if people can leverage it in their lives for better health. And I feel like I'm closer to that goal and mission now as a, as a influencer, educator. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So it really, it it really works for me. Um, Social media is so powerful on the one hand, right? I wouldn't be here without it. I wouldn't be able to talk to my audience without it. 
And I wouldn't be able to unleash my creativity without it, frankly, and I wouldn't have a job without it. But it has a dark side, like most tools or most things in life. And I think just being aware that these algorithms are designed to keep you on the platform 24-7, which we all know is not good for our mental health. So I try to be really mindful and conscious about how I use social media, how often I'm on, how quickly I can get sucked into the rabbit hole, and how I, it can also hit these vulnerability buttons that we all have, you know, of comparing ourselves to others, feeling less than, feeling like we're not quite where we should be, making us feel inadequate, unworthy. I mean, all those things are happening. And I think I just just try to be really mindful. When I get on, if I feel icky energetically in my body, I know that maybe I've been spending too much time on social and I need to get off. Um, I think it's really hard to be truly creative when you're just consuming content. Yeah. So I really try to balance creation with consumption. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's something to be managed, but I don't hate it because I think it can be really powerful if used properly. Yeah. You know, what's interesting. I feel like in your profession, like you kind of get a lot of like flack or like, oh, they're just like on their phone all the time. But like you hit on an interesting thing. It's someone I'm not like, I, I kind of, I'm a scroller. I'm not a sharer. And so I think that's worse. Like it's better to at least be like putting your life out there or like sharing what you're doing versus just spending like time scrolling. And I think a lot of, I mean, I have a lot of friends who have, you know, their businesses based off their social media following. They spend a lot of their time doing that, but they're not, they're like in DMs talking to people and like posting content and creating content. And that's like a very different experience than just consuming content. So it's it totally is. But I think the dark side is relevant on both sides. Whether yeah. How many followers do I have? How many followers does he have? Yeah. There's a How lot. many likes did I get? Why didn't I get the likes? People don't like me. They don't like my... I mean, it's like you, the inner child gets triggered. Yeah. You know, yeah. We all have that insecure side. Yeah. And if we're not mindful, it can really get activated and kind of take over and affect your mental health. For sure. Yeah. I find like I'm a sensitive person with like media consumption in general, like even absent social media. And I just don't think we were meant to know like the negative things that are going on in every corner of the world on like this escalated scale. Sometimes I'm like, my God, this is just like, it's too much. You know, like you didn't know what was happening in every neighborhood in the world, like 200 years ago for better or for worse. And yeah, some people can handle it. Like I'm one, if I watch like a intense show before bed, like I don't sleep, I have nightmares. So I definitely like can't handle it. I have, I can't, it's just, yeah, it's an interesting thing. I mean, Morgan, you hit on something really important. Like I think when we're talking about health, we have to talk about our nervous system, which is regulating so many things like stress, fight or flight. And there is evidence to suggest that if we spend too much time in these virtual realities being bombarded with information that our primitive nervous system is not designed to handle. I don't think any of us are designed to handle the onslaught of information we're exposed to. Um, It has consequences on our physical and mental health. There's evidence that stress can alter your microbiome. We know it can alter your immune system. It can alter your digestion, like blood sugar response. I mean, if your cortisol goes up, your blood sugar goes through the roof. It's like, absolutely. So I really do think, you know, I'm a big fan of fasting, um, the sort of eat real food, not too much part. Like I'm a big fan of intermittent fasting. It has changed my life. And I kind of think like, we also need to fast from content. Yeah. Like consumption, not just food consumption. Yeah. I frequently delete my Instagram. Like 
I'll delete it for like 10 days and then I'll, you know, I'll go back on. And then I delete it again. For- <laughs> I have a time that just goes to show how quickly I get in a bad <laughs> spot. I need to delete it again. Like it's so unhealthy for me, but anyway, yeah. Yeah. You can, you know, my biggest uh, tip uh, for, I mean, I've done it is to set the timer on the app. So the app has an option where you can set a time limit and it alerts you and it really, really helps. So I have a 60 minute time limit a day. And frankly, if you're a content creator and this is your work, like I actually have someone helping me um, so that I don't feel like I have to be on the app all the time to like acknowledge people's comments or say, thank you, stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Okay. I'm changing subjects here, but I want to know your cookbook. What's your, what are some of your favorite recipes from the cookbook? Oh my gosh. That's so hard. I have a hundred recipes in there. You know, um, I, I don't know other authors, other cookbook authors or food bloggers may feel this way. So I wrote this cookbook back in 2017 when my daughter was born, she's now four. And you know, when I look back, I'm like, Oh my gosh, like, these recipes feel so archaic and I don't even know, are they good anymore? Like I question my own creativity because it feels old and dated, but people buy the book and they really like the recipe. So I don't want to sort of, you know, be too self-critical, but um, let's see some of my favorites. I'll pick the favorites that my kids like. Okay. So I have um, these pancakes in there that um, are on like part of our regular family rotation. They have cinnamon, which is great for blood sugar balance. They have cardamom, which makes everything taste like dessert. And they're made with whole rolled oats and bananas and eggs. And that's pretty much it. Like they're just like really, really easy. And the kids love them. I stick them in my daughter's um, lunchbox. Then I have these chicken kebabs that my grandmother used to make. So it's minced chicken with mint and cilantro, onion, ginger, and garlic, and garam masala, which is this traditional Indian spice blend that has like clove, turmeric, chili, cumin, coriander, like all these beautiful spices. And again, it's one of those things that like everybody in the family loves. So we'll make that with some sweet potato fries on the side and some broccoli and call it dinner, you know? Yeah. Do you just do that like by, with, by the forkful? Like it's just... Yeah, it, yeah, we turn it into like a almost like a chicken kebab or burger. We dip it in the primal oh, kitchen okay. ketchup. Got it. Got it. My daughter will dip it in the ketchup or your barbecue sauce. So a lot of the recipes in the book are Indian inspired, not all, but the Indian inspired ones can be integrated into kind of a Western meal. Like I'm not eating it with like all these complicated things. It'll be like the chicken kebab with broccoli and sweet potato. Yeah. You know, stuff like that. So Love it. I'm another- hungry just talking about yeah. it. Tell me some more. <laughs> Um, we have, I have this, um, garam masala, um, hamburger that my kids love where I sneak in veggies. So I grate carrots and zucchini into the burger. I squeeze out the water. So it's like a veggie loaded burger with grass fed meat. Um, I also have, let's see, I have a Moroccan lentil soup that has like a whole bunch of veggies, like eggplant, Uh sweet potato, cinnamon, and smoked paprika and turmeric and cumin and coriander. So every recipe in the book has a spice or several. And um, I have a little section before every recipe that says, why is this good for you? And it just highlights some of the functional benefits of the ingredients aside from the spices, you know, the different veggies or ingredients. There's like a salmon in there that has a mango salsa that's really lovely Ah. in the summer. So yeah, um, very approachable, easy, family-friendly food. I love it. Are there a lot of like added veggies? Like it seems like there's, it's a veggie heavy with 
Yeah. It's a mix. Yes, uh, there, there's a huge emphasis on plants, mostly plants, but there are recipes that incorporate grass-fed meat or chicken or wild-caught salmon and um, eggs for sure, pasture-raised eggs. So it's like a it's like a plant-forward kind of omnivore omnivore-friendly book. Got it. And when you say minced chicken, is this like are you buying ground chicken and just sautéing it or? So you can. I literally just buy like pasture raised chicken and mince it myself, like, like in my breast or tenders yeah. or something, and then you just chop yeah. it up yourself. Okay, yeah. that's different than ground chicken. That would be like more like. So I, I no, I don't chop it up. I grind it in my food processor. Oh. So it, yeah, yeah. I was gonna say, man, that sounds like it would be really time consuming. So you just like pulse it in the Cuisinart. Yeah, and you can totally just buy pre-ground chicken at your butcher and just add in the onion, ginger, garlic, cilantro. Yeah, Yeah. interesting. Okay, I love it. Um, Very cool. So you were on Food Network's Money Hungry show last year, right? Oh my gosh, yes, I was. I sometimes forget. That's so weird. Okay, so what is Money Hungry? What is this show? So, you know, I got reached out to by a casting agent like a few months ago. I guess it's been almost six months ago. And I was like, what is this show? So Food Network um, piloted this new show called Money Hungry, which is basically Food Network's first game show. So they have a lot of cooking shows, but this is their first game show where contestants, it's kind of like who wants to be a millionaire. Okay. But instead of just answering questions, you're answering questions based on your palate. So you're tasting food and answering taste questions. So Money Hungry is uh, basically a game show that challenges your palate with 15 taste-related questions. You get two lifelines um, in case you don't know, just like Millionaire. And if you win, you win $50,000. And believe it or not, I was the only one that won in the first season. And it's totally surreal. I can't believe it. No way. You were the only one? So uh, like, oh, crazy. So you had to taste stuff blindfolded and say what was in it or what? I had to taste 15 dishes, some blindfolded, some not, and answer taste-related questions. Sometimes it was like, what's missing in this dish that's usually found in this dish? You know, does it have A, B, or C? Like, what are the three different cheeses? Like, I had to guess this exotic meat that happened to be alligator. Oh, my gosh. And you guessed it right? (laughs) I did. You know, if anyone's seen um, Slumdog Millionaire, which is, uh, yeah, it it really was like that kind of story for me. Like so many of these food related questions, I could connect to specific memories or events in my life around food. So the alligator was my husband forcing me to eat alligator in Florida once because my husband's a super adventurous eater. And he was like, you got to try everything once. And here's alligator and everybody eats it here. And it's like fried alligator. And I was like, I am not eating fried alligator. And he made me eat it. So when it came out in Money Hungry and it was this fried, it looked like fried chicken. And he said, this is an exotic meat that's kind of rare. What is it? I literally was like, oh my gosh, flashback, fried alligator in Florida. Maybe it's fried alligator. And that's what it was. Wow. So you got every question right? I got every question right, but I did have to use my lifeline. So I had to send a dish back and then I had to ask my lifeline food expert to help me with one. Okay. And what was the hardest question? What were the ones you had to do the lifelines for? Did you really have to name the three cheeses in a dish? Could you do that? Yeah, I had to taste three cheeses and tell which one was a goat cheese, which one was from a cow and which one was from cashews. (laughs) Okay. So, you know, that was okay. Um, But it was tricky because like the goat cheese was actually 
blue goat cheese. So it was kind of trying to throw me off. But there's a fancy cheese shop in Brooklyn, which will sample cheeses. And I feel like I had once tried this blue goat cheese. Like I said, I had these moments that saved me. You were meant to win this 50. I was meant to win this. Your whole life was leading up to this. The hardest question was probably the alligator, but I didn't, I didn't have any lifelines left. So I had to rely on myself. Um, the lifeline I used was for chickpea flour pizza crust because it was so well made by the Food Network ch- uh, kitchen people that I was like, I don't know what crust this is because it literally tastes like it regular tastes pizza like regular crust. crust, but it was chickpea. Interesting. My God, I love it. That's so funny. Okay. It's so random. Um, what does the audience need to know about, like, what other, what are some of the key, we've talked a lot about turmeric. We know cinnamon with the blood sugar effect. I love yeah. cardamom. Um, we, my family makes these like Christmas cookies called Krumkaga and they're from, they're Norwegian and they have cardamom in them. Yes, I know. I, it's Norwegian. I don't know where this, cardamom is such an Indian spice, isn't it? Like, it's used a lot in Scandinavian baking. Um, so yeah, I feel like it transcends borders. Yeah. Um, you know, cardamom, I think is a great hack for people who want to get away with adding less refined sugar to treats. It kind of has this floral luxurious quality that makes me wow. think everything is dessert. So you can add it to desserts and then get away with way less sugar. Like I added to my, added to so many things where I just don't want to add sugar. Yeah. That's great. I started buying, they make like a alcohol-free vanilla extract at like, I don't know. I buy it from Strats. It's organic. I don't even, it says the only ingredients are vanilla, but I've been, my son will ask for like honey in his yogurt. And sometimes we do honey, but I just pour some vanilla in and yes. it's like happy. It's I'm like, this doesn't even need the. Exactly. You know, there's these associations like vanilla. When we, we taste vanilla, I think we think of a dessert and we automatically, it kind of evokes like a sweet taste. Yeah. So yeah, totally. You can use those hacks. Like I add vanilla to things, cardamom to things, cinnamon to things um, to sort of trick myself into thinking I'm getting that sweet decadence without the, the sugar. Yeah. And so what other like what other spice functional benefits are there that we should know about? What are some? Yeah. So I think the most well evidenced ones are actually around inflammation control. So we know that we are in this epidemic of chronic low grade inflammation because a lot of a lot of the refined foods we're eating, um, environmental issues, you know, exposure to toxins in the environment, that kind of thing. But really, food plays such a huge role. And um, there's a recent study that looked at a spice blend. So they gave people like a pretty junky standard American junk food meal. Like it was refined bread, like white bread with some not very great quality meat, like a burger, basically. And they either added the spice blend to it or not. And then they measured biomarkers of inflammation after the meal. And they found that when they added a tablespoon of the spice blend to the dish, there was um, a statistically significant reduction in markers of inflammation right after the meal. And it's a really cool study because it was randomized, it was controlled, there was crossover design. So, you know, I think we've had a lot of test tube studies that have suggested spices can block inflammation. But now we have human studies that show in culinary amounts, it can have that effect. So I always tell people, you know, your common spices. So the spices in the study, there were 24 spices in this blend. So it's a lot of spices, but there was turmeric, cumin, coriander, cinnamon, thyme and rosemary and garlic and ginger, you know. So all of these spices have compounds that can combat inflammation. And what's really cool about it is that we know inflammation in the body is a complex molecular process. There's a lot of different things happening at a molecular level that leads to elevated inflammation. And spices can 
inhibit a lot of different steps in that process and different spices can do so in different ways. So when you combine spices, like you make a little blend in your house of a little turmeric, cumin, coriander, paprika, and say thyme and rosemary, and you add that to you know, your burger, your meatloaf, your, I don't know, your stew, your bolognese, whatever, um, your soup. And now you're really getting um, a significant boost in the anti-inflammatory properties of that food. I think that's really empowering. It's really actionable. And guess what? The best thing is it tastes better. So I'm like all for, so yeah, I mean, there's so many spices, but some of the ones I mentioned like paprika and cayenne or sumac, which I think is very underappreciated in the West. It's a Middle Eastern spice. It kind of tastes like lemon without the liquid. It's purple, which means it has these powerful plant-based compounds called anthocyanins. It has anti-inflammatory and antioxidant benefits. I love adding it at the end, like on a salad or on hummus or really anything where you want to just kind of perk it up. Like where you would add lemon, you would just add sumac. You can also add both. And you're just adding in this small but meaningful way more antioxidants, more anti-inflammatory properties to everything you eat. Yeah. I love it. And you're more creative and inspired in the kitchen. Who doesn't? Totally. So yeah. Okay. So a few just like rapid fire questions for you. So what are you most excited about in health and wellness these days besides spices? Yeah. I'm most excited about the fact that we're kind of going back to the basics, which I think is really powerful. Like we discussed, you know, going back to basics, like eating real food, mostly plants, honoring your body. Um, these are all very basic, kind of not that like magic bullet, sexy things to talk about, but really, really powerful. And I feel like more of the conversation is moving in that direction, which yeah. is going to be really beneficial. The pendulum swinging. It was like yeah. all convenience for, you know, when yes. people didn't know, like my mom's so healthy now, but like, she didn't know this stuff we know growing up. Like when we, yeah. she was raising us, there wasn't the information. And once you know it, you're kind of screwed. You can't like unknow it. And you then can't unsee it. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. Um, yeah. Who's inspiring you these days? Oh my gosh. Um, I am really inspired, I would say right now, by the work of Dan Buettner from the Blue Zones, um, which talks about these cultures that have lived, you know, where people live to the age of 100 kind of effortlessly. And what I love about his work is, of course, he talks about diet and food and a lot of the principles we've discussed. But he also talks about things like relationships, um, you know, having a purpose in life when you wake up in the morning. Apparently, waking up with a purpose can prolong your life by eight years on average. Um, You know, talking to your, like having relationships with people you interact with throughout the day. So like your local barista, the checkout person at the grocery store, like kind of saying, hello, how are you? You know, how's your day going? I mean, just more human connection can also really lead to longevity. So I love science and food as medicine, but I think there's so much other kind of therapeutic value in our lives, like our relationships and our sense of purpose, and they can really impact our health. So I'm inspired by that at the moment. I love it. Um, you mentioned intermittent fasting. So what does a day look like of eating for you? Yeah. So I'm, I practice time restricted eating now so effortlessly that I don't even have to track it. So my eating window is usually about eight hours a day. I find that just really works for me. I can get what I need to get in, but I also give my body that time for rest, repair, rejuvenation. So a typical day is I wrap up dinner with my kids. That was a game changer. I eat with my kids at 6 p.m. We're usually done by 6.30, latest by 7. 
And then I don't eat the next day until 11. And you know what? You can train your hunger hormones. Um, so if you have somebody that has always been eating at 8 a.m. and now you suddenly want to expand your kind of fasting window a little bit overnight and eat at 10, you can do that in two days. Your ghrelin levels can move by about 45 minutes a day. Um, so I don't feel hungry before 11. That's when I break my fast and it really works for me. And then every three months, I do a five-day fasting mimicking diet which was designed by Professor Walter Longo at the University of Southern California. I love the idea of a longer day fast, but I'm too chicken to do like a three-day water-only fast. So I just cheat a little and do this fasting mimicking diet that gives you some of the benefits of a multi-day fast while you're still eating some food. Oh yeah, I've heard of that one. And what do you eat when you're on that that again? I can't remember. They send you a box. So it's five days of like soups and bars. It's not very much food. It's basically a vegan keto plan. So it tricks your body into this ketosis state and then it's very calorie restricted. So the combination of the keto plus the calorie restriction kind of tricks your body into thinking you're on a water only fast. Oh, I love it. I want to try that. I've heard a lot about that, but I haven't I'll try that when I'm done. When I'm done having babies and nursing, I can get more. Yes, you definitely can't do it while you're nursing. Yeah, I I intermittent fasted forever too. So I I love that. But but then what does lunch look like and what does dinner look like for you? Yeah. So, you know, at 11 o'clock I eat, I kind of eat two main meals and one small meal. And I really try not to snack in between meals because I feel like it... So much of it is mindless, boredom-based, you know, just overconsumption. Um, the more times you eat in the day, the more you're sort of susceptible to making mindless, poor choices. So I try to have some structure around two main meals, a smaller meal. 11 o'clock is either, you know, some pasture-raised eggs, greens, and avocado, or sometimes I'll eat oatmeal, I'll add some nut butter, because that helps me stay in a more stable blood sugar range. Um, I'll then, my lunch is often a salad with some sardines. I'm obsessed with sardines or I'll do plant-based protein in the form of chickpeas or black beans. Um, dinner is kind of varies whatever my family's in the mood for. Sometimes it's burrito night uh, where I'll just turn it into a burrito bowl. Um, you know, I definitely try to stay away from the refined carbohydrates as much as possible. Um, tonight is going to be wild caught salmon and asparagus and sweet potato. So it really, sometimes it'll be Indian food, uh, a lentil soup, um, you know, with those chicken kebabs or like a chickpea stew. It really varies, but I love variety, but I also have to feed two kids. So I'm always trying to sort of find things that they love that I can turn into a family meal. Yeah. Get them in the rotation. I like it. Okay. What's the worst thing you've ever done for your own health? The most, the most detrimental thing I've probably done for my health, which I sometimes do from time to time is just mindless overconsumption. And we're all prone to that because we live in a world where we're bombarded with hyper palatable, hyper exciting food choices all the time. And I think I just try to be mindful and honor my body's need for sort of a break from food. Yeah, for sure. What is like a health hack you're doing that most people aren't doing? Um, talked about fasting. We know you're adding spices. I mean, the, this five-day fasting mimicking diet, every three months, that's pretty impressive. Yeah, I feel like that has really kind of changed my life. So, you know, intermittent fasting daily is really beneficial for things like metabolic health, blood sugar balance, some autophagy. But the research suggests that when you do a multi-day fast and you really put this hormetic stressor on the body, um, your body has to really become resilient and adapt through a process called autophagy, where you literally kind of 
eat yourself. Yes. Like our bodies are so smart. They consume damaged cells and damaged organelles. And I really feel like with this five-day fasting mimicking diet, um, I've been able to really rev up autophagy. I feel just every time I do it, I feel about five years younger. <laughs> Just have a lot of energy and mental clarity, and you know, so probably that's the hack right and now. Every three months, how long have you been doing it? Every three months, I started doing it every three months earlier this year. But when I first started, I was doing it every six months. But I noticed when I do it every three months, it really just builds on itself, and it's kind of like the gift that keeps on giving. Interesting. God, I love it. So do you like pick a week that you're not doing much? Like how can you, or yeah. So the biggest hack is that I've started to do the five day fasting mimicking diet with a group of friends. Okay. So any challenge I think that you undertake that, you know, is going to be difficult, even like running a half marathon, it's always fun to do it with a group. So I have a group of about five girlfriends. We do it. We pick, we usually start on a Sunday. We try to do some meal prep for the family a little bit before, or we, enlist the significant others to kind of step it up that week. We plan that we're going to do some takeout for the family and we do it together. We have a WhatsApp group. We cheer each other on when we're having a hard moment. We're like, we, you got this, you know, and it's been so helpful to do it with a group. That's so fun. I love that. The next one is January, first week of Jan. Perfect. Yeah. I love yeah. it. <laughs> How many people are doing this together? We're about seven now. So I actually invited my uh, followers on social media. I was like, anyone want to join this group for support? Just DM me and I'll add you. And like a few people did. So we're like seven or eight now. You know, it's it's just us like supporting each other. That's so great. I love it. Um, Okay. This is my favorite question I ask everyone. What is something that most people don't know about you? Yeah. um, Something that most people don't know about me is that I can sing and I kind of wonder if maybe I should have become a singer. <laughs> really? Yeah. That is but, a good one. Are you going to do like a little something for us? Come on. No. Come on. Because <laughs> I didn't become a singer. So no. <laughs> but do you sing like to your kids and like in? I any- sing to my kids. I sing in the shower. I sing when I'm cooking. So yeah. Did you sing growing up? Like were you in choir or anything? Like I that? was in choir. I was trained to sing classical Indian music. Um, I was told I had a great voice, but, you know, I haven't practiced in so long and probably need some like vocal cord like exercises, but yeah, I love singing. Oh my God. That's a good one. I like that one. I've heard all sorts of things, but that one's really, everyone wants to be able to sing. I mean, that's like such a great hidden talent to have. I know. Right. I love it. Well, thank you. It was so wonderful to meet you. I've learned so much today. I'm really impressed by all of your your biohacking, health hacking stuff you've got going on and just your platform that's in, that's influencing so many people. I'm, I'm going to go cook out of your cookbook for sure. I'm craving now all of these things. So thank you so much. Um, why don't you tell everyone where they can find you? Um, yeah, maybe they want to join your fasting mimicking group. I, I know I do. So fill us in. Where can, we, where can we keep up with you? Yeah, so I am very active on Instagram at Chief Spice Mama. I'm also on TikTok because apparently you have to be yeah. also as Chief Spice Mama. Um, so I'm very active there. You can DM, DM me, you know, reach out to me that way. And then I have a blog slash website called SpiceSpiceBaby.com where I regularly post recipes and um, I have a newsletter. You can sign up through the blog where I share recipes, health hacks. I'm actually doing an intermittent fasting frequently asked questions 
questions blog post soon. So it's a lot of stuff around food, deliciousness, and sort of lifestyle to help us all feel our best and live our best lives. So come reach out. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Morgan. It was so fun.